on the Legal Economic Nexus podcast, Michigan State University institutional economists Eric Scorzoni and Sarah Klammer explore the work of heterodox and institutional economists. Institutional approaches to economics have a long history going back over a century, but are becoming even more prevalent since the trauma of the Great Recession, global financial crisis, and now the COVID-19 pandemic. We will be interviewing current thinkers from the fields of economics and the law to gain insights into important new research, approaches, and tools to understand the economy. Welcome to the Legal Economic Nexus podcast, episode seven of season one. Sarah, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How about you, Eric? I'm very good. Today we have Glenn Atkinson, retired professor from the University of Nevada, a longtime institutional economist and a winner of the Veblen Commons Award. Welcome, Glenn. Thank you. So we'll go ahead and get started. Sarah, why don't you go ahead? Yeah, so you actually have a new book out called The Evolution of the Corporation in the United States. We're just curious, why tackle that issue specifically? And what are the key lessons you learned in writing the book? Well, the guy who's made my retirement years very good is Steve Pascal. He's a co-editor, and he thought that was a good topic, and Elgar eager to get it. But uh, we have been working on law and economics for some time. And our first book, Steve had a book out on uh, law and economics from an evolutionary perspective. And so this kind of came out of that work as well. But we thought the corporation, with all these legal things going on, that have been going on and are going on, that would be a topic because the original idea of the corporation was that it could only do what they had in the charter. Mm -hmm. And ultra-virus is what Steve explained to me about the legal things. And then they had the general corporation laws in 1880-something, I think 1880, that they could do anything that's legal. That's a New Jersey law. And it spread. And so now we're working with corporations having really no social control. That's, I think, part of the title, social control. and To financialization, yeah. Yeah, right, yeah. And this Malcolm Rutherford's history of thought uses that word of social control, mm-hmm. and we have it no longer. It's just now what they want to do that's legal. <laughs> so we thought we'd we would look at the evolution of the corporation because it's become the dominant form of, of um, not maybe a number, but in terms of power, corporation is, is the dominant business uh, form now. And we see very little written about it. Were there any surprising things you found as you were putting this together? Yeah, that's a good question that I hadn't thought of. Uh, <laughs> we had followed, and Steve is a lawyer, we had followed the law up through all this time. So I'm not sure so, so much a surprise, but it hasn't been written as far as we could tell. Mm-hmm. That, uh, that the corporation, 1890, we had the uh, Sherman Act, and the Supreme Court just did away with it, basically. The Supreme Court said mergers that were reasonable would be allowed. Only unreasonable uh, corporations would not be allowed. And the Supreme Court put in the rule of reason and decided for themselves what were reasonable and what were unreasonable. So people are shocked that the antitrust laws have had almost no effect in mm-hmm. this concentration. 
And that's, I think, for me, that was one of the major things we learned. And I think, tell me when it's going too far here, but we had the uh, the Minnesota rate case, John R. Cummins called it. It was a longer title than that. It really changed the nature of the corporation. It created intangible property rights. And then for intangible property rights, the uh, value of a corporation is exchange value. That is, what the market says it is. That caused a lot of instability in the economy. Mm-hmm. And I think we documented that pretty well. Thanks, Glenn. Uh, yeah, that's good. And again, just one, we wanted to know, yeah, you had the, the book out in 2021. Yeah. So the institutionalists out there should definitely review it and think about the corporate form. Yeah. Going back a little bit in time here in the late 80s, early 90s, there was an important debate, especially in the Journal of Economic Issues. Evgeny Romstad in particular wrote an article that you responded to with Mike Reed about that there was an incompatibility or a sort of competing paradigms between Commons and Veblen. And you actually, I think, addressed this again in 2009, but I'm kind of curious what you think about that debate today. If, if you think that, have we moved past this notion of Commons and Veblen being at odds with each other, or uh, what's your sense of that today? The Commons and Veblen were not at odds with each other, I don't think so much. Commons praised Veblen for being the first to notice the implications of the uh, uh, intangible property rights. But his difference with Veblen, Cummins' difference with Veblen, was Veblen didn't look at purpose, and Cummins did. Veblen was more the mainstream science. If you go to, to do you know, science, it's not a purpose, it's what's, what's happening. And the difference is that some people in interesting economics, they think that it's a natural selection of institutions. And Commons was very much and found in Darwin that if there's purpose in creating institutions and laws, then it's artificial selection. And this is, to me, very important because the problem with neoclassical, it was based on physics. And we changed over to evolutionary economics. I like that term better, <laughs> that the uh, economy involved because of we see problems and we want to deal with it. And so the purpose of it, and I'll jump over to Alan Schmidt, <laughs> you ask about, he looked at this in the same way. Uh, you know, you have to look at situation, structure, and his paradigm and performance. If the economy's not, something's not working well, you don't just jump into it. <laughs> you understand the situation and structure before you do anything. You identify there's a performance problem out here. We don't like what's happening. So then you go back and people jump in, let's do this. Well, that's what neoclassicals do because they have, they don't have a futurity as Commons talk about, or expectations that, as Keynes talked about it. You're trying to change where we're going by artificially changing it. And as Smith said, we do it without looking into it enough. Do you think the followers of Commons and Veblen, did they sort of try and create a distinction that wasn't needed? Or, I mean, clearly there was some people who felt there needed to be a this notion of instrumental versus reasonable as some kind of difference. And, and you seem to argue that was really not necessary or, or maybe not productive. I mean, is that still the position you hold? I was in graduate school years ago <laughs> in the 60s, and that was... There was an argument, I didn't understand when they created AFI, Evolutionary Economics Association, whether it should be Commons 
Veblen or Veblen Commons. <laughs> That's how petty it was. Mm -hmm. And there was a Veblen errors, clearance errors that a lot of people use. And I didn't see they were incompatible. I think they're both working. I think there's that they're both looking at, I like the word evolution better than I do institutional because the economy evolves, but it doesn't evolve naturally. It evolves by purpose. And we make mistakes and that sort of thing in doing this. And I think it was unnecessary debate. And mm -hmm. there were people on both sides. And I just thought, hey, <laughs> Commons had certain strengths and government had certain strengths, but government didn't participate in the economy the way Commons did. Commons was a participant observer. <laughs> he went out and got involved with it. He deduced his theory, or I guess that's induced his theory from what he saw out there. So I, I think it was unnecessary. And I think there were, he, Ramsey had, I think, a point because there was so much publication about Bethlehem and very little about Commons. That's changed dramatically now. There's a lot. And one of that reasons for that change was the uh, transition economies in Europe. As these countries became broke off and so forth, they looked at commons and their legal foundations as being a good guide for what they're trying to do. Yeah, yeah. right. That's a great point. Do you think, uh, this is a little speculative, but how do you think commons and, and Veblen both, given that are the, the most important corporations in the world today, Google, Facebook, or <laughs> Meta, Microsoft, Apple, et cetera, Amazon, of course, as well. How do you think Commons and Veblen, do you think the economies evolved quite a bit? These are different kinds of companies and how they make money is quite different than U.S. Steel or General Motors. How do you think Commons and Veblen might think about these companies today? Or, or are the issues similar in many ways still? I think they would agree that this is the result of intangible property. These companies don't produce real stuff. They have copyrights, patents, and so forth, where their wealth comes from. And so it is the economy has evolved. It evolved in part because of the recognition of intangible properties back in 1890 by the Minnesota rate case. I think it's the economy changed and the law has to change and the law allows them to change further. Well, what Steve Patton talked about is the co-evolution of economics and law. One doesn't drive the other. They they respond to each other. So I think that you're, I did a case study in that book here, just talked about the corporation and looked at the pharmaceutical industry. Most of their income, wealth, comes from patents. You could pump out one more pill for a penny, <laughs> but they still make it through what nearly a a fifth of a, of a century living off patents. Now they're talking about a patent cliff when some of our most lucrative drugs are going off patent. It's going to be a heck of a transformation in the pharmaceutical industry. So I think that the uh, law based on intangible property rights, intangible property rights are what's driving this. And yeah, I don't know what we've done without this. Yeah, that that is interesting. That's kind of been my thought. Is actually they Commons and Dublin might really understand this because intangible properties only become more important. If you look yeah. at a company like 
what they own, what they physically own is probably one one thousandth of what they're worth uh, or That's something. That's right. And I was up at the class one time trying to talk about the Fortune 500, the old kind of U.S. steel, Exxon and so forth. And I see that my students weren't connecting. I said, mm-hmm. well, what country? Disney? <laughs> you know, things like that. McDonald's just is an application of Henry Ford's assembly line to hamburgers. But they got what? They got that name, McDonald's. The economy and the law changed together and drove each other together. Yeah. They evolved. Do you think institutional economists have adequately addressed the nature of the new economy as we are talking about it now? I think, uh, I can't name specifically yet, but I think that they are working that it's, yeah. it's really different to explain to people and to write about. But yeah, there are people who are working on this new economy. I'm not sure we've done the we haven't really done it, you know, as well as we should, but that's not to say people aren't trying. Right. Well, thinking about this on like a broader level, do you think in general experts or economists are interested in examining new institutional alternatives for, rather than merely going back to older policies like New Deal or Great Society policies? I hope so. Thomas <laughs> <You know, laughs> talks about the move from handicraft work to industrial work and in handicraft work there was scarcity you couldn't turn so much industrial work there's abundance our market economy cannot handle abundance what happens to price if things are abundant they plummet mm-hmm. and cause instability so what the courts have done is created laws and policies they keep things scarce they give Ways to protect scarcity, patents, right? Their their purpose is to keep things scarce. So many things out here that are, I'll think of it, there's nothing on my mind, but I have to come back and think about it. But it is that the whole economy has changed from industrial, as you went in industrial, that can, it can produce more than the, than the economy can absorb. And one of the great economists we don't talk about enough is uh, Wesley Mitchell. Mm-hmm. Because Wesley Mitchell studied the pioneer and studied business cycles, and he applied the um, theory Bevelin talked about, but Bevelin didn't do anything about it. He wasn't much in policy. Common looked at this and he talked about in the handicraft day, you could only turn out so much stuff. Then you get the industrial, and the industrial economy had to be financed. Industrialism and financialization came together. You had to finance all this stuff, the machinery and the inventories. But the big thing you had to, and you had to finance this up when you started producing, to when you get the revenues years later. All right, the financial economy was created by the industrial economy, and then the the bankers, as Commons called them, the banker capitalists, wanted to make sure that they kept things scarce so they could be paid back. Mm-hmm. So it could reap their what they put in the economy, and this is this came on up later to Hyman Minsky, you know, who talked about the financial instability hypothesis. It started way back in the industrial at the beginning of, of industry, of industrialization. We know it. That making sense, or yeah. Well, I guess I'm wondering. I mean, so it just sounds like the reality then of 
of the economy changing so much is that we simply have to kind of look for new institutional alternatives. And that's yeah. not really a choice so much as a necessity. Well, we just got through writing your paper, so I'm, my mind is in that. But Steve and I come and said, the American problem, this is 1934, the American problem is judicial sovereignty and banker capitalism. That what happened is the courts now say what the executive branch and Congress can do. Mm -hmm. Okay. And he says, and then the bankers control the economic side of it because they say how much will be, will be produced. And so we need to think about this, in my opinion, in this framework, not like it's a competition, oligopoly, and so forth. We need right. to talk about it in terms of property rights. And I want to add property duties because you give somebody a right, you give a rest a duty to obey those rights. You know? Exactly, yeah. You've actually made this argument that essentially, to me, you were trying, I always felt like you were trying to bridge the gap between the Bevelin and Commons or their followers, let's say as well. And you talked about, for example, in one article that bargaining and rationing transactions were essentially pecuniary and that managerial transactions were industrial or whatever word you want to use side of it. And that was kind of a way to bridge the gap between the two ways of thinking do you think people responded well to that idea of how you tried to kind of encompass the two paradigms together? I don't think that would do it. I, I have a different take on that. Bargaining transactions are between legal equals. They may not be equal, but they're legally equal. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then managerial and rationing are between our power relationships. Okay. People with power and people without power. And the managerial is more in the uh, industry. Commons use a foreman worker. Bigger than that, though, the, the, the owner of the, of the factory or the company can direct people to do within bounds. Mm -hmm. Rationing transactions are above kind of like a state, like property rights or court rulings or that, that sort of thing. The big thing here is that Commons talks about and I don't think Bevelin does, not that he should have, but he, but in the old days of handicraft, there was bespoke work. I'm going back a bit now, but the master craftsman made a deal with the customer. The, it wasn't a, a big market. It was personal. The customer, they agreed on a price and quality. So there was no need for finance. What we went to in industrial production is speculative. We make a bunch of things and have to peddle them. That's what bankers are concerned about. I'm wondering a little bit here, but what we have here is I've put a whole bunch of things out here and that only came with uh, with transportation. You should not have tra much transportation or communication. And so when you started building roads and canals and so forth, and I think the most transformative thing along that line for the American economy was railroads. It allowed the creation of a market, a continental market. The railroads then created, helped create the industrial economy because you need rails and steam, all that kind of stuff. Managerial economics was more in the business sector. The rationing was overall policy. And so I don't know how many people read the last chapter of Institute of Economics by Commons. And he said, if I look at 
American banker capitalism, fascism in Italy at the time, not, not Germany, and communism in Russia, what the Russians and Italians did was got rid of the legislature and the courts and run by executive power. What America did was let the judiciary shut either one of those up. They made the decisions. Look what's happened in, in recent years about how the uh, how the court has said you can't do this. Okay, does that make sense? And sure. Yeah, yeah. What he's saying is, we have banker capitalism, and so it goes over to our, the American problem is twofold. One is judicial sovereignty, and the court, the federal court, is the American brand of dictatorship. We didn't like these guys, and it's going to get much worse with the federal society, federalist society. You know, that we just six of nine justices now were from that federal society, not American Bar Association. Mm-hmm. And so these transactions take place in this environment, the changing environment. But let me go back to the second here. These transactions set the condition for exchange. It's not exchange first. The transactions are not about delivery of goods. They're about setting the the power relations, legal relations between parties that will exchange. And so the, the better your transactions, Commons thinks will lead us probably to, he said this, probably to, to fascism. Mm-hmm. I see where you're coming from. Yeah. I mean, that last chapter of institutional economics is an important one that maybe people don't, maybe should read more probably. People refer to comments more than I've read him <laughs> all the way through. <laughs> He's right. difficult to read. Yeah, I think that last chapter is really critical today. Yeah. Anyway. I want to quote something you wrote in 2009 from the article Going Concerns, Futurity, and Reasonable Value. You said, certainly Commons understood and accepted the dichotomy. The question that needs to be examined and discussed is what to do about pecuniary institutions. Do we need to go back to only corporal property? How can the instinct of workmanship be induced to provide the composition of output that serves the community without a pecuniary reward? Our pecuniary institutions have failed us in this current financial crisis. Can they be redesigned to be more functional? Or do we need to dismantle our intangible property system? So obviously you're writing in the context of the global financial crisis. We've now gone through another crisis, which we're probably still in to some extent, the pandemic. Looking back on what you wrote about 10 years ago, what do you think about that? Do you think, um, where do we stand? Do you think the intangible, we've already talked about how important intangible property is. Do you have any thoughts on that 10 years later on what you wrote there? Tough question. I don't know why I think, <laughs> no, no, but <laughs> if you're going to have Industrial production, you have to have it financed somehow. Financially, if you go back and look at uh, Bertie and Means, Modern Corporation and Private Property, that was one twist on it. But the financial, and then what you find from reading Bernie and Means and a lot of other people, in common in particular, probably Bevelin, that bankers insisted to be on the corporate boards mm, yeah. because they had a lot of stake in what was, you know, their financial. And I don't think we made much progress, and I don't, it's going to be difficult to do. If you look at, um, let me go back to 
Mitchell again. People should read him. And if you have this long thing between having to borrow money to produce and years later, you've got to have finance. <laughs> and they're going, to, they have inserted themselves in. And Thomas says the banking capitalists are bigger than the political government. So it's going to be hard to change <laughs> what we do there. And now it's become, as you say, global. And I don't see, I mean, Randy Ray and Stephanie Kelton, you know, do the modern monetary theory, and they're onto something there. But it's really hard to get people to to see it or to, to propose anything. How do you finance industrial production? Yeah, sure. Uh, it's just, the, you know, the whole thing about modern monetary theory and those people talking about Randy and Stephanie, what Commons talked about was futurity. We act now, but we are acting for the future. He called it futurity. Keynes called it expectations. And so you're putting money into something that you won't see the results for a long time. And so textbooks, kind of like with Paul Samuelson, skipped out on uncertainty, that these people are dealing with uncertainty and speculation. So we have our macroeconomics has been kind of befuddled for a long time, you know, I, I think, you know, and what we teach is, is not. So I don't think we know quite what to do. I think Randy and Stephanie would have a, you may be a better handle on this, but I don't think we know. I don't know about the your banking system and how do you keep their confidence up at the same time you don't give them all this power that we've given Sure. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I think, I think you're right. I mean, there is a very tough challenge there to do these things, given the size and scale of the economy. And yeah. Yeah. And you have this thing going on now with Russia, and we're going to try to get their banking system. That <laughs> tells, tells you a lot. Are there mm-hmm. participation in the banking system? We have a bigger banking system than they do, of course, but uh, it's, it's dealing with uncertainty, as yeah. admitting uncertainty. In the economic profession, I think that uh, Randy and, and, and Steph and those people are, are the people at the, at the BB Institute, for example. I don't have any easy solutions, any easy answers to that. Sure. No, I'm sure good. other people do. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know, but <laughs> going back to something else you wrote, actually in 1983, you noted that institutional economists were too concerned about theoretical niceties rather than real-world empirical issues. Do you think that's still true or that we've moved to a better place since then? Let me answer this in a personal way. I did that Bevelin Commons lecture in 2010. Mm-hmm. And by coincidence, I got to know a, a guy who's a, who has a master's in economics and a law degree. And I started talking to him at breakfast. And I said, well, you're the kind of guy we need because you're doing things that we're talking about or mm-hmm. writing about. And so I hooked up with Steve Pascal, who is amazing to me. He's the one who, who helped, helped us work all the way through. He was, we were trying to confirm Commons legal foundation of capitalism. And it's just appropriate. And yes, it is for us. We, he follows cases beyond where Commons was. Now, your question was, uh, yeah, the niceties. The law is not nice. <laughs> niceties. Things like that. You get out there and work with people in the, you know, in the law. And his, 
especially is a trust in estates. I've learned a lot about how these cases come about. I did some work years ago on the European Union, and the lawyers led that, not the economists, that consolidation. You know, the economists didn't, didn't have a lot to say about it, but the lawyers pushed it. And what they had to do was harmonize the laws of Europe. That what they found was, if they looked into their trying to complete the, the common market, what they found was regulations were actually non-tariff barriers. They did the same thing that tariffs did, and so they had to work to harmonize those laws, like accounting mm-hmm. standards and things like that. So it's getting down in that nitty-gritty that Steve uh, does that I, I learned a lot. You and you think that. we are getting better at that? I think it's easier for the mainstream, at least, to model something. <laughs> they go out and get a bunch of axioms and solve that model as if it has something to do with the economy. It doesn't. It's their puzzle. And so it's just an economist. I think I've done more on for this, getting out there. And that's the reason I like Commons, because he got in the middle of it. He worked with these people. And he understood them better and came up with some, you know, they weren't nice cities. <laughs> the people were at each other. Commons, and I think Feldman too, I've read more comments as I keep mentioning, but what comments, you know, notice that it wasn't as Smith's wonderful world as Howard as called it. It was based on conflict. And how do you get through conflict of interest and establish order? And when people depend on each other. And so that's going to be a hard, I think that's the way, I think we have to, to say that. I would highly recommend Malcolm Brothers' book, but institutional thought. I think reading some of that would give you a, a good perspective. He thought that the followers of Bethlehem were a little bit disappointed. He didn't get in, in the battle with them. And mm-hmm. his favorite economist was Walton Hamilton mm-hmm. that nobody writes about anymore. You know, I, I can see why, you know, because we need to get out there with Steve, my co-author, got involved. He was got a degree in social work where he dealt with people and they got a degree uh, and then used that degree and other, other work to create hospitals in low-income neighborhoods in Pittsburgh. And man, what things he can tell you about, you know, the insurance industry and so forth by being involved in it. When I taught, I go, when I taught here, I, I taught public finance a lot and I focused on public, state and local finance. I had students go out and do projects. And we got to the point where the city here, Sparks, wanted us to, we started and we got in involved with them and we did some of their work for them. And the students loved it, this thing, how budgets are made, how programs are run and so forth. Before that, I had decided that all this stuff about taxes and spending and grants, and I knew nothing about grants, so I volunteered to send a committee in Reno about how to advise the city council on how to allocate their community development block grants for, for poor areas. And I learned a lot from seeing that. And a story brief here, there was an institution, a committee, it was all nonprofits applied for the money. And one 
was a, uh, was a group that worked with teenagers, I think mostly boys. And they came and asked for some money, and they were impressive. Then they made the mistake of passing around photographs of what they were doing. There were two black members on the committee of about 15. And all of us white folks, oh, that looks good. And then the two black folks said, where are the black kids? I mean, we were embarrassed, to tell you the truth. We didn't see what they saw. And until you get out and do some of that, you can uh, miss it. <laughs> you know, so I think that's a, that's a major reason for getting involved in all these non-niceties out there. You see what people are concerned about and how they, uh, how they, uh, what they're up against. Greg, uh, we have one last question, I think, for you. What What are your thoughts to young institutional economists? What they, issues they should be thinking about? You know, what are your thoughts on their path forward? If you have any advice? Well, it's hard to find a graduate program that emphasizes this. You know, I don't know what's happened to Michigan State uh, with their institutional program, but I was um, I was really impressed with them and. They have to find a place where they don't have to. <laughs> It'd be nice to find a place that receives this kind of stuff very well. Texas used to be the big place, you know, University of Texas. They have to read some of the literature, foundational literature of Bevelin, Commons, Mitchell, Clarence Harris, and so forth. I didn't start reading Commons until I graduated law school, I mean, graduate school. And it took me years to you know, get through that where I felt comfortable. And mm-hmm. every time I thought I got comfortable, I found there was another layer to the onion. <laughs> I kept peeling it off, you know. You have to start writing. I don't understand something until I write it. And sure. then I run, I understand. So I guess you'd have to get to a school. First, you may, it would be helpful, and I didn't have this, go to a school that has a good undergraduate program that have people receptive to that. There are things like Bucknell and people, places like that. But uh, I don't think there's any magic wand here. Another little story here. I went to Humboldt State up in Northwest California. It's a very small school. And we had three economists. And they didn't cram anything down me. They just taught the course. But I took a, a course in philosophy, more than one. But we had to read this book on making the modern mind, and I would recommend it, 1940 book. But then we had to read Rene Descartes' Discourse on Method. I think, therefore, I am. <laughs> Nonsense. And I was, we were asked or told to write an essay at home on this. And I went home, and I got myself crazy trying to write that. This is not smart-ass. I went back to the professor and I says, I can't write your your essay. And I was doing very well in class. And he said, why not? And I told him, I don't think he is the, the guru in philosophy of this, whatever, you, something like that. We had we spoke to why he's the most. And he had the kindness to say, I'm not going to my office now, but I'm going, I'm going to a meeting. Why don't you walk with me across campus and tell me what you're thinking? What I, know, I had no idea what I was thinking. <laughs> but I babbled along, and the guy was smart enough to pick up on some things. And he says, you need to read the American Pragmatist, Dewey's person, 
and uh, James. And I says, he was walking and he came to a stop and he says, well, I'm right out of my meeting now. I think you need to write on these people. And I said, where do I start? And we were in front of the library. And he says, in there. <laughs> That's what I didn't need. When I started reading these people, and by the way, that might make them out of mind, they're in there too, but I thought about it. You know, I went in and read this, and I said, I don't know what this really is, but it sounds good. <laughs> so I wrote, an, I wrote an essay, made up an essay, <laughs> and I turned it in, and for some reason he said, I'm teaching an honors class next uh, semester, and I a team teaching one. I'd like you to join and read this new book by Gunnar Myrdal. <laughs> cumulative okay. causation yeah and i read that and i thought wow <laughs> you know he had me read that the american negro problem in america that's where i think yeah the cumulative causation started there but i think it's you can't just wait for somebody to teach you stuff you have to say this doesn't make sense or it does make sense and take charge of your own education as much as you can you know i, I know i know people have gone to places like columbia and they said they can't do it there because <laughs> they're too busy doing math <laughs> but i had that and i had another course one of my last semesters there on romantic period in, in english literature mm. i knew nothing about <laughs> any of that I didn't know what iambic pentameter is, <laughs> but I took the took the course, and the big thing came. One thing came out was noble savage. The noble savage. These guys were romance. Get out of these nasty institutions and go out there and just be in the wilderness and be perfect. And so I wrote a paper sure. on that, and yeah. I learned about my thoughts about institutions from that nature and so forth and wrote a paper on that so a lot of my hunger for understanding this stuff came from very different courses than the econ courses and there were good courses the econ courses were good courses i'm not i got into it because of a really good yeah. professor so anyway i think they can't just wait they have to find a way maybe my mind was a lot of luck but i think you have to find ways to figure out your own self what you're looking for and yeah and sure. I stayed in economics, and my uh, advisor at uh, Humboldt had was just finished his dissertation from Berkeley. But I went to him and asked him, I'm thinking about going to grad school. What do you think? And he said, well, we expect you to. And I said, well, where should, what's be a good school? He went through thinking about it. He said, he's good. This guy's really good. He says, well, he was offered a job at the University of Oklahoma, but he decided he wanted to locate where he would want to live up in the Redwoods in mm. California. He says, well, I went to Berkeley, but they had a lot of sons of bitches there. I don't think you'd like. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I was in Oklahoma. He said, I think you'd find that more to your liking. And it was perfect. <laughs> yeah. uh, because these guys were doing things that I wanted to do. They didn't teach the textbooks of instrument economics, but they were doing things, observing. <laughs> things and mm. talking about things i went there but my point i'm trying to get at, i guess i'm ramble but i think you have to take charge of your own future a bit 
as best you can. Sure. And so that's, I think it's very hard to find a school. And if you go for the prestigious schools, forget it. <laughs> but uh, I, that's, that's pretty harsh. But I think you're you're looking for a place that was would accommodate you, you know, yeah. as much as possible. Sure. There's some good prestigious schools. I shouldn't have gone that far, but I think that there's uh, places that you can find your way <laughs> and take advantage of it. Well, thanks so much, Glenn. So again, we have Glenn Atkinson with us for this episode. And again, Glenn, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you.